Hello, and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. On the 9th of June 2021, the co-organisers of this project, Dr. Dieter de Klerk and Professor Ian Sabro, had a conversation in front of a live audience with Dr. Lauren Barron from Baylor University. In today's episode, you'll hear an edited recording of this live online event. You'll hear Dieter and Ian speaking with Lauren about the role of humanities in medical education. The Medical Humanities Program at Baylor University is one of the very first of its kind in the United States. As the director of this program, you'll hear from Lauren about why undergraduates who aspire towards careers in healthcare need a foundation in both the sciences and the humanities. That's all from me. On with the show. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to what's already uh, the fourth conversation about arts, humanities and health, and especially welcome to our guest today, Dr. Lauren Barron from Baylor University in Texas. I'm Dr. Dieter de Klerk. I'm a lecturer in film and media at the University of Kent. And together with Ian, we're hosting these series to explore connection and dialogue between arts and humanities and uh, medicine. So for each of our conversations, we are joined by a guest to talk about their work and their career. And very grateful that Lauren could join us today to talk about the role of humanities in medical education and especially to tell us more about the innovative medical humanities program at Baylor University, which provides undergraduate students who aspire towards careers in healthcare with a foundation in both sciences and humanities, something which I think goes very much to the heart of, of the things that we're exploring in this series. And I will gladly hand over to Ian. Well, hello, everybody. Really lovely to see you all again. It's a particular privilege to welcome uh, Dr. Lauren Barron. Uh, she set up one of the very first medical humanities undergraduate programs in the United States, um, which is an extraordinary vision and achievement to have, and as such has therefore influenced the development and careers of, of many uh, doctors and many people working in a whole variety of allied health professions who've used the pre-med course uh, to move on to other specialties, other courses in medicine and the like and has influenced many other of us who've set up our own teaching courses in the medical humanities and who've modelled our own courses and work on what Lauren has done. So she's been in part the founder of a major and important field with huge influence, perhaps beyond even that which she knows. It's a huge privilege to welcome her here. I was delighted that she was recently awarded the Debakey Chair in Medical Humanities at Baylor University, an honour that she so richly deserves. Lauren, it's a huge privilege. One of the best uh, times I've ever had in my life was visiting your amazing programme and working and seeing you at work with your students and your colleagues and seeing how motivated and passionate your students are about medical humanities and what they can bring. Which I guess comes on to our first question, um, which is, what for you is the value and contribution of humanities teaching and research in society and in the context of health? Why did you do what you've done? Well, I think that all of us would agree, none of us want to go backwards in terms of our scientific understandings and technological advances that we are the beneficiaries of. Um, but we live in a time when science seems to be prioritized over everything else. And science is wonderful for what science is wonderful for. But science is about sameness. It's about things that we can generalize. It's about universal laws, things we can replicate. It's looking for single best 
answer kinds of things. It's it's reductionistic. It is wonderful for what it's wonderful for in terms of helping us understand the biophysical understanding of disease. But my experience is that I'm treating individual patients who are particular, they're idiosyncratic, they're individuals, there are things about them that are unique and particular. So if we only are fluent in that one way of knowing, that scientific way of knowing, and we aren't fluent in a different way of knowing about whole persons, not just their pathology, you know, but who they are as complete human beings, as people, if we don't have another way of knowing in which we can comprehend the experience of illness, okay, not just disease at a molecular level, but the experience of illness for human beings, then I think we are, we are not well-educated. And Humanities does this how? Why have you sought to bring the pre-med course of medical humanities in? And give us some, some examples of how Humanities is helping you bridge those divides. Well, medical humanities is a little hard to explain. And I'm, I must say, Ian, I cannot take, I, I just can't let this stand because I'm the beneficiary of, you know, a, a movement that was created by, you know, generations in front of me. But also there's this fellow named Hippocrates, you know, so I, I, I don't really think of this as a, as a new thing, but sort of reclaiming some of that ancient wisdom and being able to um, apply that to our current context. But it's difficult to explain the humanities. It's difficult to explain medical humanities. So I have an elevator speech, we say in the U.S., prepared. Okay, so this is my elevator speech, is that, that medical humanities is a bridge between the art and science of medicine, that it's the best of a liberal arts education with the medical focus, and that I'm trying to turn pre-health and pre-med students into human beings before their medical training turns them into gods, robots, jerks, or some combination of the above. That's how I explain it. So that's one thing. Another thing is that I think there's this idea that everything that you need to learn in your medical training, you learn in your formal medical training. But my contention is that day one of medical school is too late to start making a good doctor, <laughs> you know, that we, we need to start much, much sooner. So in terms of um, how we do this specifically, think of the best literature class you've ever had or the best history class, or the best philosophy, but think of it as um, shaped around the topic of healthcare and medicine. So it becomes easier, I think, for people to see the relevance of it in what their, what their practice is going to be. Because we're talking about something slightly different than we often talk about in these sessions. Sometimes we talk about medical humanities as disciplines that sit outside of medicine, that look at them or critique them. But you're but your um, engagement with medical humanities is really different, isn't it? it it's um, bringing in the best of humanities to help us understand ourselves and make the world a better place for the people we care for. And that's a very different conception. At least in my work as a family doctor, I never know what story I'm getting ready to walk into. When the door opens, I never know what I'm getting ready to walk into. And I love that. But I never know what is going to be the key. What key do I need to sort of unlock the connection with this person? And if I don't have any experience with, with history, with literature, with travel, with culture, with, with psychology, with the social sciences, with art, with philosophy, with religion, if I don't have those keys, I can't unlock that connection. So 
for me as a clinician, and I, I am a clinician, I, that's my pride, that's who I am. It seems to me that if an immersion in the medical humanities doesn't somehow alter or change or improve who I'm able to be with that patient in front of me, then I don't, I don't understand it for its intellectual sake only. I need it to help, help change the quality of the attention and the quality of the interaction I'm able to have with the person in front of me. And so, and that means my capacity to connect with them, but it also connects with self-knowing, self-knowledge. I think picking up on this concept of knowledge, and you you talk about another way of knowing, and I think you, you mentioned the concept wisdom. Do you feel that's a helpful concept, wisdom, to try and conceptualize what this other way of knowing might be that we could find in humanities? Well, I think that at least that's what I'm looking for when I'm listening to a great teacher of literature or I'm, I'm listening to a philosopher or I'm listening to someone who is a, to an artist, uh, to a historian. Maybe it's the way I'm wired, but I've always it's not Aesop's fables. Right. There's not always a moral at the end, but I am looking for what is that? What can I glean from this person or this story or this lecture that I can carry with me no matter where I go. So I guess wisdom is one way of thinking about it. One of my favorite examples is Dr. Eric Cassell, who talks about ways of knowing. Uh, say that you were asked to describe a rose. Okay, you're, you're given a rose and you're asked to describe this rose, but the only tool you're given is a ruler. That's the only thing you can use to describe that rose. The, the picture that's going to emerge is going to be accurate you know, in terms of inches, but think of how much you've missed out on, you know, in your description or your, ex- or your ability to convey the experience of a rose. That has been a very useful metaphor for me in thinking about the sciences. It's going to be accurate. It can be necessary. It's a, it's a way of quantifying, but it's not the whole picture. And it seems to me that at the point in time we're living, we're making the mistake of thinking that science has the whole picture. If you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail or whatever right, the right, proverb right. says. Yes, and yes. and you speak to something that I that I've found that humanities gives me, which is also some different tools for lifelong learning and continual quest. Because if I don't know the landscape of human experience and moral dilemma and philosophy of care, when I butt against problems to do with them. How do I engage if I don't know the words, the map, the route, and the journey? Exactly. I mean, I can't say it better. I've spent, I keep doing the math and I keep not liking it. It's adding up to 30 years now. I've spent 30 years gathering up tools. At some point, I became aware in my formal medical training that I was not going to learn everything I needed to learn in my formal medical training to be a good doctor. And so I feel that I've spent 30 years looking in these other areas for the tools that I've needed in my, you know, my doctor's bag and gathering up those tools. And now, you know, I'm becoming moved even, even as I, you know, talk about it now, I'm able to hand my students a toolbox. I don't know what tools they're going to need. I don't know what they're going to need it for, but at least I can hand them a toolbox so that when it comes time, they can, you know, root around in there and, I'm also getting a picture of Mary Poppins' bag right now, but they can root around in there and find what they need, maybe, I hope. 
I find those tools often in story. I don't know about you, but actually I now often tell stories to the doctors I train and I don't know if they just think I'm old and past it. <laughs> or if I think sometimes just hearing my stories of failure as well as success, my stories of learning where I've had to become a better human being to meet a different situation or mm-hmm. think in a different way are, are very mm-hmm. powerful. And also knowing how to frame and use story mm-hmm. is something really important that, again, that you can get from the humanities in the way that drama and film is narrated and, and constructed. Absolutely, absolutely. Lauren, I wonder if you maybe could give us an example of you know what you could find in a toolkit that the humanities brings that you know, complements you know what you would get from a formal medical training uh, maybe there are some concrete uh, situations that you remember that impacted you where you feel like oh this is a, a particular concrete situation where i feel like i've been able to use something mm-hmm. that i've learned from humanities as a as a practical tool in this you know situation as a clinician I've been thinking recently about a patient that I encountered who was, it was a very fraught consultation. The person was extremely angry, very upset, very belligerent. And uh, even before I walked in the room, I could sort of feel the electricity in the air before I walked in. And it was very unpleasant, actually, to be with her. I know this may shock some of your listeners that, you know, it could be, be unpleasant sometimes. And there was a poem that I had in my toolbox. Now, I cannot, I could not have recited this poem. I couldn't have recited it for you. But it was a poem that I kept handy and it sort of bubbled up to the surface as I was with this patient. And I have it here and I'd like to read it, if that's all right. And it's called I Wonder by a man named Derek Tasker. And the poem is this. I wonder what would happen If I treated everyone like I was in love with them, whether I like them or not, and whether they respond or not, and no matter what they say or do to me, and even if I see things in them which are ugly, twisted, petty, cruel, vain, deceitful, indifferent, just accept all that and turn my attention to some small, weak, tender, hidden part and keep my eyes on that until it shines like a beam of light, like a bonfire I can warm my hands by and trust it to burn away all the waste, which is not, never was my business to meddle with. When this poem bubbled up to my awareness or my memory, maybe I should say my impression of the poem or my memory of the poem or my experience of the poem, when that bubbled up to the surface, I have to say it sort of jerked me out of that more clinical way of being with patients. It just kind of jerked me into a different kind of awareness, a different, the capacity for there to be another way to be with this woman in this room at this time. So that would be, that would be an example, having that poem. I can give you another example of a patient that I saw saw, and this was in the 90s when we were still in the thick of the AIDS crisis, and I was called to see a patient who was dying. He had uh, really the most uh, shocking Kaposi sarcoma I'd ever seen in terms of lesions from his stomach all the way up his esophagus into his mouth. He was skeletal. He had these black, you know, bloody lesions everywhere. He was throwing up blood when I walked in the room. I was a brand new mother at the time. I had two residents with me. Uh, He was chained to the bed. He was chained to the bed because he was a prisoner and he was a prisoner because he was a pedophile. 
So the fact that he's vomiting blood, he's been in the hospital for three days, he's still in an orange jumpsuit, which means that no one has bathed him. He hasn't been put in a hospital gown. Um, There was no one in the room with him. And when I walked in, I just absolutely, you know, I'm a brand new doctor, brand new attending. And I I, I realized that everyone's looking at me for what we're going to do. And I've never encountered anything this horrible. And I froze. I just absolutely froze. And then what happened is that something, it, it just emerged in my awareness. And it was a piece of scripture. I was raised in the, um, the church. And the scripture is that I was hungry and you fed me. I was in jail and you visited me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. And when that piece of scripture emerged in my awareness, I knew exactly what to do. I had my marching orders. First of all, I realized this is that person that Jesus Christ was talking about 2000 years ago. He's he's incarnate. All of the things in that verse, this man is. And then I knew what to do. Nurse, I need some oxygen. I need you to get housekeeping in here. We need a new gown. Officer, unchain this man from the bed. I need some morphine. Let's get you sitting up. I mean, I instantly, I knew what to do. And when I say know what to do, it wasn't medically. It was how to care kindly for this man. Um, before I had been terrified. And in that next moment, I knew what my calling was to do. I, I don't know if that's the kind of example you mean. I'm fascinated by it because you speak so powerfully to the thing that is so striking for me as a clinician too, which is how medicine is both systems and personal all at the same time. We move from designing a system or a care system or meeting complex needs as a pathway to being in a one-to-one relationship with an individual looking them in the eye to deliver news or deliver care in a way that's that's very special. And you're showing very powerfully how medical humanities or, or knowledge of the humanities or your own human experience can be illuminated by study. But how do you build that into an education program that makes sense out of humanities disciplines in ways that you teach? What are, what are the pillars of education that you use to, to begin to put those landscapes in place for people? Well, you know, the traditional four pillars are history. The history of medicine was one of the earliest of the pillars. And then philosophy and medical ethics. There's a paper about how medical ethics saved the life of philosophy, you know, made philosophy. Um, I, I hesitate for my uh, philosophy colleagues that are there. I hesitate to use the word relevant. I hesitate to use that instrumental word. But um, so philosophy and medical ethics, and then the arts and literature, and then religion and uh, spirituality. Those are religious studies. Those are the four, you know, history, philosophy, the arts, and religious studies. Those are the traditional four pillars. So the way I think about it is this way. A study of history you know, if, if it's done done well, of course, you have the specific stories and then the way of looking at those stories and examining them. But also, I think it would be a mistake if you didn't come away from a course in history without, a, especially medical history, without a sense of humility, without a sense of humility, without a sense of change over time. My experience in medicine is that we're taught about human physiology almost as if it's something static, like it's a, it's a slice in time. Whereas disease is a process, right? That it evolves, it's process. 
So I think his history, if it's done well, can help us understand, get, get that feeling of process, get that feeling of everything takes longer than it takes, <laughs> you know, and also, and, and humility would be among the lessons I've taken away in terms of religious studies. The reason I think that's important is if we think about how much religious worldviews shape human behavior and and decision-making, like especially at the end of life in some of the most intense situations, it seems bizarre to me that we would sort of shy away from an exploration of the spiritual experience of human beings, um, because that can be such a powerful motivating force. In terms of the arts, in terms of literature, uh, for me, it's and I don't have as much experience in film, Dieter, so I, I need to be educated in that way. But I think um, literature, that capacity to li- listen generously, to spend time listening sort of generously and extravagantly, or um, the term uh, close reading, to be able to read closely. And there's a lot, there's so much corollary between that and then what I'm doing with the patient story in front of me and the way they're telling it. And then with the visual arts, of course, learning to look, you know, that careful, close observation. And uh, Ian, you and I know this, you can be chatting, everyone thinks you're just chatting happily away with the patient, and you are, but you also are gleaning tremendous amounts of information about their cognition, about their affective state, about their memory. Uh, So you're gleaning an enormous amount of information in what sounds like a conversation about oh, I don't know, whatever comes up. I think there's the coursework. And then I also think there's the, uh, like you're saying, Ian, the stories, you know, the capacity to tell those stories and tell stories like I just told you about how this shaped who I was, how this, a lot of times it's just completely ineffable. I'm not going to be able to give you an example like that. But there are other times when you're just basically, the muse just enters (laughs) the space and you're inspired by something you learned in history and philosophy and asking questions different ways and literature, the arts, things that you've learned about religious worldviews. So that's all I can say is that there's the curriculum. And then I think there's the modeling of ourselves as clinicians and how we're shaped by those things so that students have an awareness that there's, there's something besides their physics and their organic chemistry and their, you know, their pathophysiology that can shape who they are. I'm particularly struck about what you're saying also in relation to, you know, the experience you, you shared with the AIDS patient and how, you know, your engagement with scripture. And I think I thought it was particularly powerful because I think it is something that we can uh, relate to even, you know, people who may not be Christian, for example, I think will know exactly what the power of that was. And I think it is also the power of, of a narrative, you know, scripture, we may not necessarily think of it as literature, but parables, they, they tell stories. And I, I was struck by how that seemed to provide you orientation of, of what you needed to do. And I think it brings us back maybe to this conception of, of wisdom, and there's many out there, but, but one that I like particularly as well as, you know, the capacity to realize what is of value in life for oneself and others. And it struck me that your engagement with the narrative in scripture seemed to provide you some kind of orientation to be able to assess what was of value in that situation, what needed to be done. And yeah, so thank you very much for sharing that. You know, when I think about scripture, um, I do work at a, at a Christian university where we talk about these things explicitly, but 
let's just take the King James Bible. Okay. It's history. It's philosophy. It's literature. It's stories. It's, of course, religious. I'm sure there there may be some who would criticize me, but I think that what I didn't know is that a lifetime of going to Sunday school, you know, has, I think, kind of shaped me. I wouldn't have called it humanities, but it really does kind of get at all four of those pillars we talked about. I find as well that, again, coming back to this thing, you have to learn the language to know how to navigate the space. We... We seem to be born very often with a unique, strong sense of fair and unfair, but articulating why something is unfair or, or fair or knowing how to improve or address it or how to respond appropriately is, is much more difficult. And, and you and I have written together about justice theory and actually, fight for me, finding the words in the theories of justice has given me a much greater insight into how to critique injustice in healthcare. And I need the frameworks of moral philosophy. In Michael Sandel's justice course, I think it's Michael, isn't it, at um, you know, Boston, is an amazing thing to watch online. His books are wonderful. They empower me both in the dual actions of making a better system and in the individual actions of being more just in my relationships with patients. But if I'm not taught the philosophy, I don't know where to find it. And I only have this dim sense of it. I think that's absolutely true. And it's not just those of us at the bedside who need that. It's those in healthcare policy. It's people who are administrating our hospitals. It's people who've studied the the business and the economics and the administration. There's a very significant potential audience. The, the scholars may not realize they're there, and the folks in healthcare administration may not realize that they need it. But that's, that's a definite bridge that needs to be built, no question. I, I want to um, go back to something you said as well, maybe to provide a, a little bit of context where maybe the American context of medical education is different from the UK. I think you said when people start medical school it's too late but if i'm correct in the in the u.s medical school is grad school right so you do a degree before whereas here in the uk you come out of your you know you're 18 and you will start a seven-year medicine course which is the same thing in belgium right so when here in the states you come out of high school and then you enter the university and the vast majority will do a, a bachelor level or a baccalaureate degree and then go on to uh, starting medical school. Now, I want to be careful not to be too physician-centric because uh, my students, they, they don't only go to medical school. They also physical therapy, occupational therapy, social work, law, healthcare policy, healthcare administration. Um, so it's not only about physicians. And I, I want to be very careful about not being too you know, physician centric, but that's my tribe, you know, that's who I belong to. But when I use the word medicine, there's some people for whom medicine is an exclusionary term. It feels like it's, I'm excluding people. When I say medicine, there are some people for whom they they hear the word medicine and they just think physicians, but I hear the word medicine. And I think of everything that happens in a medical center, like everything to me, it's a big tent word, but I want to just be aware that it can be a trigger word for some people, especially if they've had you know negative experiences with the you know with the healthcare system. But backing up, um, so it's usually it's a four year uh, degree program, and here in the states you can study whatever you want, which is a very little known fact. If you wanted to study the cello, if you wanted to study history, if you wanted to study 
you know, Spanish, if you wanted to study philosophy, as long as you have the prereqs for medical school and you're prepared for the MCAT, um, it doesn't matter what your degree is in. So that's why I love this medical humanities program, because basically this is very selfish work. I'm teaching, I'm teaching to my 20 year old self. Okay. These are all the things that I wanted. I wish I had known before I went to medical school. I wish I had studied healthcare economics. I wish I had studied, you know, philosophy of medicine. I wish I had studied great scientific texts. I wish I had all of the things. So, so that's how medical education is built here. So bachelor's degree and then the medical schools, there are some centers like say Stanford or Duke where, you know, students will go to university there. And then the medical school is like literally at the same place or very nearby. Here in Waco, uh, Baylor University is um, actually separate from Baylor College of Medicine, which is in Houston. So my students are going to medical schools in all different places, if that helps. And then after that, you do residency or specialty training. So I, I just always feel like day one of medical school is too late to make a good doctor. You know, we've got to start much, much, much sooner. So how did you, as one of the founding people of medical humanities courses, granted I, that they go back a long way in history in their way, but how did you put it together and how did you find that process of bringing in educators um, and researchers from all the different specialties that make up medical humanities into contact with your pre-med students. And, and how does that, how does that work? There's, there's been some research that occasionally suggests that humanities scholars brought into medical courses feel like they're being sort of used to make nicer doctors, which is of course a far too simplistic set of terminologies. But my impression from Baylor university was that it's a really collaborative process where everybody's getting a great deal out of it but but how did you build that well I would say build on, on it but um, I think it comes down to hospitality coffee lunch conversations finding common ground finding that common language I don't want to paint with too broad a brush but it, it is the case that some of my colleagues in the humanities there there may be some there may or may not be, I cannot confirm or deny, some decreasing interest, you know, in terms of the numbers of students who are signing up for those, for certain majors. But the colleagues that I've been able to form relationships with, if I ask this question, if I ask this question to a historian, what do you know as a historian that you would wish your doctor knew, you know, or a professor of literature? You know, what is it that you know that you're able to do as a literary scholar that you wish your doctor knew? Um, I agree the idea of what's going to make a better doctor sounds too instrumental, but if I'm asking it in a way that how can this, this person with their expertise in this dis discipline, you know, what would they most want a physician to know to do a better job of taking care of them? I also find that if they've had the experience of needing to be cared for, Ian, you know, if they've been in the hospital if they've been a patient or they've had or they've had to care for a, you know, a sick child or they've had to care, they're, they're, they're caring for a parent. I, they come to an understanding of how significant that is right quick. You know, when when they've engaged with the healthcare system and they see, wow, you know, how lacking things can be. So I think it's breakfast and coffee and conversations. And I'm genuinely interested in what they're doing in teaching. And 
I think that they realize there's, at Baylor at least, a massive percentage of students come into our university saying they want to do healthcare. So there's a massive audience. If you, if you want to just get down to the to the fact of numbers of uh, bodies in the numbers of seats, which I'm not prepared to do, but if if you wanted to just get down to the logistics of classes and and having an audience for classwork, the pre-med, pre-health population is a rich, rich source for them. I was very moved reading Devon Stiles' book, one of your teachers that you that you work with and researchers, um, and her way of conceptualizing, experiencing, showing illness through arts and different ways to bring communication alive yes. and to see illness in new ways that allows you to understand a different world was very powerful. And it's interesting that one of the questions that's coming on our Q&A, uh, who said that they work as a disabled arts practitioner, and was also talking about how the arts and different ways of understanding illness and disease and diagnosis and communication can be built into courses such as as these and I wonder you know whether you, you have views on that and how you do that within your area of work absolutely well there's a movement I think of understanding in the U.S. you know we've talked about this document I'm going to show and tell the frame document okay about the fundamental role of the arts and humanities in medical education I think there's an increasing understanding that these can be embedded. I mean, there's all of these dichotomies. Like we can't, we can't keep blaming Descartes. I mean, I think it's really, we're trying to get off easy by continuing to blame Descartes for this mind-body split. You know, we have to take some responsibility for getting that, you know, integrated and um, integrating, you know, arts and humanities and science education and integrating you know, the theoretical and the practical and the, you know, the scholarly and the instrument, getting all of these things integrated. So I think there's a movement to do this. Um, There's a slide I use in one of my lectures and I talk about migraine headache. Okay. We need to be able to talk about, you know, the fact that it's a, there's a, you know, vasodilatory process and all of the different, you know, mechanisms and vascular swelling and all of the inflammatory mediators and triptans and the pharmacology of triptans. And yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We absolutely have to speak that language. But when I set that alongside this dramatic painting of a woman who's, uh, who's done a portrait of herself with a migraine and, you know, she's got this exposed eyeball and these, you know, these radiating, you know, scintillating lines coming out and just, you know, she's half skeletal and on fire. It is just a, an amazing painting. And when you set that painting alongside that exploration of the pathophysiology, for me, at least, it helps anchor that information in a way that the words by themselves would not have, wouldn't be as sticky. It wouldn't stick as much. And it also helps to show why we need to know that. We don't need to know that just for its own sake. It helps give us the reason why we need to know it and why it matters, what it means, not just what it means, but why it matters. So to me, it seems like the power is in laying these things in parallel. And I think there are more ways to do that than we have been willing to admit. You put in a painting, you put in a poem. It's it's really not that complicated. I want to be careful because I'm not I'm not a literary scholar. So I want to be careful. I don't want to minimize things. But I think if you if we were to put these things in parallel, that it would be a more powerful way of educating. And I think that goes across the board. I don't think that's not just for doctors. I think that's every for everyone. 
It's an interesting thing that we often talk about what humanities can bring to medicine. What medicine can bring to the humanities is a, is, a, is another question. Chris Millard and Dieter and I debated this last week with this the, the tension between the value of a discipline for its own sake versus also finding new ways in which it is it's relevant in terms of affecting change within other disciplines. And it's a very interesting thing because I believe that knowledge is valuable intrinsically for its own sake in terms of discovering how to analyze and critique literature and, and so forth, if we're going to talk about that. But also it allows us somehow to find new ways to understand others or new ways of seeing or, or, or new ways to work out what the challenges are that we need to overcome in the worlds that we create and change in our professional lives. And still that space between medicine and the humanities is still hard to navigate, isn't it? It's, an, it's, it's sometimes an uncomfortable space to sit in, I find. I, I don't know if you still find the same or if you've become very comfortable with it. I think there are there are some people that I encounter in the academy for which I cannot deny that I, I can tell that I'm being condescended to. <laughs> I can't deny that. You know, a little looking down the nose, like, wait, what are you? You're an empty. What? What are you? I've even had people say, what? What are you doing here? Like, what? What, what is it that you do? And that feeling of that I'm a plumber or an electrician or something like that which by the way, they're going to need those too. I just want to point out. Um, But that feeling of um, that I don't somehow belong in the Academy, but I know all I can say is I know what I needed to know. I know now what I needed to know as a young, you know, as a medical student going through training and I can help shorten the, the time I can help condense the amount of time it takes them to acquire the language, the landscape. The other thing is that, in, and I don't know about in the UK, I couldn't say, but I'm sure you don't have arrogant physicians or arrogant, you know, um, professors in, in the UK. I'm sure, no. you don't do I'm sure you don't do that at all. <laughs> and the thing is that, you know, I'm a primary care physician. And if I cared, if, if, if status and prestige was the thing I most cared about, then, well, that's just not me. So all I can say is, that arrogance and pride, hubris, are just beige to me. I mean, that's just be- that's just the background. That's just background beige. And I'm able to sit and listen, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. and then let's get on with it. You know, sort of listen to that that posturing and the talking about professional boundaries and scope of practice and the discipline. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And then you know, let's get on with it. I think somehow I'm a little bit intentionally naive or intentionally oblivious being intentionally oblivious to some of that helps i i mean i i would also say perhaps that you understand those disciplines while you work with them but you also contextualize them in a way that you find useful and are able to show your students mm-hmm. and perhaps that's part of what we do and, and perhaps part of detail what humanities scholars do when you teach humanities is it, it's all about finding a context that we want to communicate as educators that that works for us and that means something for us and that will have traction with some of the people we teach, maybe not with others, that inspires some, that some will choose our courses because of that and, and some won't. And, you know, you're very, very good at contextualising the fact that you want to make healthcare better, healthcare in its broadest sense, as you say, whether you're training the managers or the physios or the OTs or the doctors or the nurses um, or the lawyers, 
you know, that actually showing them where they can pull this knowledge from and learn um, and still value those disciplines, but also reflect on them as, as agents of change themselves is a very valuable thing. Is that fair? You know, I'm thinking about, you know, mathematics, you know, the queen of the sciences and, you know, the beauty of mathematics, but you still got to be able to make change when you go to the store, you know, I mean, there, there is the beauty of it, but there's also a way in which you, you, you got to come away with some skills that you can actually use in the world. So I think maybe the key is showing respect to my colleagues in the humanities, you know, so showing respect for their discipline, having taken the time to acquire some of the, the, the lexicon that they use. Maybe, maybe it's, it's a matter of showing respect. I think that's an important piece of it too. Dita, you're, what do you, how does this resonate with you as a humanities scholar hearing two doctors speaking about their interaction with the humanities as well? I think it's it's really interesting to hear, and I think this resonates with a question that has just popped up in in the Q and A about the vulnerability of health professionals. And we were talking about this with Chris Millard that you know there's no beating around the bush. You know, medicine and health are valued more highly than humanities in uh, society. I think partly for good reason, but there's also discourse around that that pits the two against them especially in the UK at the moment, as if the two, you know, can't mutually inform each other. And, you know, for humanities people who feel imposter syndrome, talking about medicine and, and health, it's just interesting to to hear that there is vulnerability, people working in health and medicine. And I think this can, can be an important way of finding collaboration is being able to admit to each other that, you know, you feel uncertain and you feel some out of your depth I'm going to link this to the question that came up in, in, in the chat. You know, it's a bit disheartening that even Dr. Barron may be seen as an imposter in this space of medical humanities. What hope do humanities scholars interested in this field have at making an impact with health and medical students? I don't think I'm the one to answer that, Dieter. I would ask you, I would turn that question on you. I think what I have found very rewarding is that there is such an openness and willingness of you know health professionals that I have worked with or that you know came to our conference where we all met that that that's very hopeful and I find it very you know it makes me really happy to to see that you know people like you and people like Ian want to have conversations with people working in humanities because you think that it can actually bring something of value to what you're doing in your in your professions. I think my main concern is not necessarily about openness among people or clinicians, but perhaps sometimes an unwillingness at the level of policy or, or the level of government to to acknowledge that. Recently, I think in the UK, there there was this um, the office for students, or sorry, the education secretary, you know, wanted to divert funds away from particular kind of arts and humanities subjects because they were high cost but so-called low value and was explicitly pitting them against courses and programs that would contribute to healthcare and supporting the NHS. And obviously STEM is enormously important in this area, but I was quite disappointed that it seemed to imply that oh yeah arts and humanities cannot contribute to health care or the NHS in any meaningful way. This is insanity. This is absurd. This is absolutely absurd. It's just the word medicine. I mean, that word, oh, 
the word is so, it means so many different things to so many different people. And when I, I cannot think of anything else that's more quintessentially about the human experience where, where it's more necessary to understand the unique, particular, you know, special individual and their story. That's right. I cannot think of anything more bizarre than thinking that medicine doesn't have a place for the human. That just, it, it doesn't compute to me. And I still struggle with ways to help other people understand this, but medicine has been equated with science and technology, but science and technology alone are never, ever going to solve our problems. Never. It's never going to happen. Um, it's never going to happen. And we have this mistaken notion that science holds the answer and it it's folly. I just want to beg my colleagues in the humanities to just elbow with your way in like I have. You know, you elbow your way into medicine like I've elbowed my way into the academy because this is insanity. And I think that the other thing that's so helpful about you doing this at the baccalaureate at the undergraduate degree level one of the things that I found the biggest barrier to understanding what the arts can teach me and show me and help me understand and be interesting as a discipline is I don't have the language and I joked with Chris Millard our historian that you know they that I say I, I, I the first humanities conferences I sat in words would be thrown around like agency and I didn't know what it meant I know and so you find yourself excluded by the language in the same way that a humanities scholar would be excluded by me saying, well, this case of heart failure was evident from the raised JVP, the Gallup rhythm and the peripheral edema and the anti-pro-BMP was 4,300. And that's fascinating that this gap of language, but now I've started to appreciate the language and learn to listen i've learned to understand what the lessons are that i can be taught by teaching this so early you can give people the languages you can show them the space you can give them the map to navigate Mm -hmm. and at present we don't know how to do that and when i listen now to people talking about contested diseases or philosophy of care or morals and principles or when i teach on ethics I, I can now filter that language into something that I'm more used to or can, or can teach and explain and then also engage meaningfully with those disciplines in a way I hope that is constructive. Um, but, but how language divides us is a fascinating problem. It is. It's a fascinating problem, but I also have a little bit of impatience with it. Now, let me just tell you one thing. I can remember being completely burned out. I mean, fried, just exhausted. And uh, I was at a conference with a bunch of philosophers who used the word finitude, which I had never heard of in my life, which I thought was emblematic. <laughs> finitude. Wait, what's what's that? What's finitude? Um, Please tell but me. The so other I thing is, I have a little bit of impatience because this is what I do. I take what I've what I've learned in the scientific realm, and it's my moral obligation to be able to translate that for the specific patient in front of me. You know, I would never speak like that to a patient, like you did about heart failure. I mean, I would never do that. That's absurd. So I have a little bit of impatience with that because I think, yes, it takes some effort to translate, you know, to find a common language. But isn't that there's this whole thing called communication, called dialogue, human connection that we we are supposed to be good at. We're supposed to be good at communication. So um, I have a little bit of impatience with it, Ian, I must say. I think this touches on 
a question that that just came into to the chat. You know, if somebody from an arts background is interested in getting involved in this crossover between the clinical and arts humanities, how would they go about that? Which was a question that I've, you know, asked myself. I think there's no harm in just trying to do it. It's something that I found, and you know, the, the conference, which kind of started the conversation series as well, was okay. We'll just do it and see what happens. And you know, something resonated. But it's also, I think, and this resonates to what Ian was saying about feeling left out of the language. I think imposter syndrome is the is the wrong word, but there is something important about being able to acknowledge what you don't know and being very open about it. I'm, you know, I'm not going to talk to Ian about and we'll pretend to know about you know heart disease or and there is a kind of I think anxiety around that when you collaborate with people but I have found that if you're just very open about okay you know I'm really I don't know about this but perhaps here is something that I could offer and then you can see that the the, the other person who comes from another disciplinary background is interested in doing the same thing so there's something about that kind of humility of admitting that what you don't know I think can be really important to try and find meaningful collaboration so we don't need to think we're imposters but equally I think we just need to acknowledge what we know and what we don't know and I think openness to whatever's going to happen I don't at least the way I work I don't know what the outcome of some conversation or collaboration is going to be but let's get in there and you know let's see what happens you know so sort of an openness to not I don't know, not always have to control what the outcome is going to be. It's funny, it feels like humility has been a really big part of our conversation today. Your humility faced with need and need to know more, our humility faced with not always understanding each other's disciplines. In careers where medics and people are not always known for their humility, as you alluded to earlier and as, uh, as I understand, and actually that sense of inquiry and mutual inquiry to go with humility is very powerful, I think. You know, I can't I can't leave this conversation without mentioning one of my favorite pieces of writing by a, a man named Anatole Broyard, B-R-O-Y-A-R-D, Anatole, A-N-A-T-O-L-E. And it's a piece called The Patient Examines the Doctor. And it's one of my favorite pieces. He was uh, the editor of the New York Times. So he was very, you know, intellectual elite in New York City. And he had prostate cancer. And he describes, you know, examining his doctor. And uh, at some point, he uh, and he wants to have a doctor with style and panache, the way he wears his you know surgical cap. And I mean, it's, it's very funny, uh, it's very poignant. But at some point, he talks about the fact that you know he's all he also as a patient he has expertise. You know, he has expertise in you know telling stories. He has expertise. He said, and he he wished that there was a way that there he's talking about his urologist that their mutual expertise could frolic, their mutual su- superiorities could frolic together. And uh, it's a whimsical phrase, but I love that. You know, the idea that even in the patient encounter, you know, this is a co-creation, it's a collaboration. Uh, yeah, the, where there should be a place where our mutual superiorities could frolic. That's great. So what are your hopes for the future, Lauren? And are there still things that you, that, you know, what do you want, what do you want to still achieve in your, in your ongoing work, building, building your course and, and cross-disciplinary expertise? Well, I think I heard someone say, I can't attribute it, and I apologize, but I've been really thinking about it, that the new innovation that we need is integration. That's what we need. And so figuring out ways to integrate these ways of knowing, these different approaches, these different disciplines, these different realms, 
I think there's a way in which that the new innovation is going to be integration. I don't know what that means, Ian, exactly. <laughs> but I think that just the fact that we're having this conversation is you know, kind of a manifestation of that. It is true, the need to generate more and new and better and more accurate um, knowledge. But we have a lot of that that we're not using well because we're not integrated across disciplines, across systems, as you would say, that figuring out how to how to integrate those different ways of knowing, I think, is what I'm supposed to be about. Yeah, I was particularly struck, Lauren, by you, you, you talking about you know the concept of medicine as being very scientific and technological, but that there is a you know foundation of medicine, at least in the West, going back to Hippocrates, where there's always been, it seems, a kind of integration with the wisdom or knowledge that we have in in humanities subjects traditionally. Mm-hmm. So I think you know integration between humanities and medicine seems to be something that we've talked about today and I hope very much that indeed happens and happens more often. Well there's definitely some scientific snobbery out there but it won't stand so it just it just won't so we just I just want to encourage um, I just want to encourage all of us to you know we can't put up with that because science alone is not going to solve our problems it's just not going to it's going to give us knowledge and technique and technology but in terms of the wisdom to know how to apply that for the all the best reasons, science doesn't have those answers. I'm really, really grateful to have this conversation with you all about this. Great place to finish. Um, One last comment was about co-teaching in interdisciplinary courses. I think you and I would say yes. I've worked with philosophers. I've I've sat in your classes and seen what you're able to do and achieve and how great your students are. Um, Absolutely. So draw to a close i think Dieter, do you want to just say any last words ahead of this um first off to say of course thank you to uh, dr baron uh, we are amazingly grateful for this conversation and even when you and i are not speaking you often inspire me um i sometimes see difficult complicated clinical stuff and i sort of have in my mind how would lauren do this <laughs> um, you've taught me a great deal both in my professional and personal life so thank you for that too Thanks, everyone, for uh, listening and participating today. And thank you again, Lauren, for a fascinating conversation. And thank you and goodbye. That was our fourth conversation about arts, humanities and health with Dr. Lauren Barron from Baylor University. We hope you enjoyed it. Join us for our next episode, which will feature a couple of twists on our usual format. First of all, you will get two guests for the price of one. We'll be joined by Professor David Magnus and Dr. Alyssa Burgart, both from Stanford University. And second, for this conversation, Dieter will be relieved of his usual hosting duties. Ian will instead be co-hosting the next conversation with this week's guest, Lauren Barron. Ian and Lauren will talk with David and Alyssa about the role of philosophy and bioethics in medicine, with a particular focus on the theoretical and practical delivery of ethics into clinical services. For more details, look us up on Twitter at Convo Arts Health, or you can go to our website, www.research.kent. .ac.uk forward slash medical humanities. This episode of Conversations about Arts, Humanities and Health was produced by me, David Brown. Until next time.